The Federal Reserve has been forced to announce new ethics rules after a scandal over financial trading conducted by high-ranking officials led to the resignation of two regional bank presidents. But will this really prevent Federal Reserve officials from using their positions of power to further enrich themselves? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself and a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, has just been released, which features a new lengthy introduction, which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Richard, I'm looking at Financial Times, a British financial paper, an important paper for people who want to stay on top of things in the economy. Here's from an article that came out a couple of days ago. The Fed is still conflicted. It is good that senior Federal Reserve officials will no longer be allowed to own individual investment securities or derivatives or to trade their portfolios actively. Here is what the Fed said about this on Thursday. The new restrictions will apply to both the Reserve Bank and board policymakers and senior staff and prohibit them from purchasing individual stocks, holding investments in individual bonds, holding investments in agency securities directly or indirectly, or entering into derivatives. Policymakers and senior staff generally will be required to provide 45 days advance notice for purchases and sales of securities obtained prior approval for purchases and sales of security and hold investments for at least one year. Further, no purchases or sales will be allowed during periods of heightened financial market stress, not letting people who know about Fed rate policy deliberations trade actively is a good idea because stocks and bonds are sensitive to rate policy. And if officials start front-running Fed policy decisions, that would be acutely embarrassing. 
It is odd that rules like this were not in place up until now. The reason things have changed is that the heads of the Dallas and Boston federal banks were trading individual stocks quite actively. I like the euphemistic phraseology, quite actively last year. Anyway, Richard, the news is the scandal that the policymakers at the Federal Reserve are involved in investments and trading, and obviously their decisions about monetary policy, about quantitative easing will have very big impacts, especially on, say, real estate, where a number of them are actively also holding investments and trading. So that's one part of the story. But the bigger part of the story really is it brings to the public's attention that the Federal Reserve actually exists. And there's a kind of mystique about the Federal Reserve, sort of like this lofty, independent, non-governmental, kind of semi-governmental, both a banker's bank and also an important sort of pillar of the federal government's monetary policy. Anyway, there's a number of issues we want to talk about. Let's start with the scandal and then... I want to ask you or have you respond, why was the Federal Reserve created? What caused it to be created? It was created by an act of Congress in 1913. So with that said, let's get started. Well, it's hard to keep a straight face reading that nonsense in the Financial Times. They should be ashamed of themselves for covering this story in that way. Let's be real blunt and clear so everyone understands. It is against the law in the United States, as in many other countries, to trade in a stock market based on what is called insider information. The basic legal idea is this. If you are privy to information that is relevant to economic performance of companies and therefore of their stocks, information that is not generally available to the knowledgeable public, then it is illegal for you to trade on the basis of such insider information. If you are a member of the highest levels of the Central Bank of the United States, because that's what the Federal Reserve is, in other countries it's called the Bank of England or the Bank of France or the Bank of Italy. Uh, We don't call it that because of historical reasons. There once was a Bank of the United States. It got itself, by the way, into scandals, and so we got rid of it. And when we realized we couldn't do without it, we recreated it, but we gave it this funny name, the Federal Reserve, but it is our central bank. And if you are a high member of that on the board of governors, for example, then of course you have private information. You know a good bit about the thinking of the 12 or 13 individuals who are going to be deciding whether interest rates go up or down, whether money will be created in large or small quantities, and other very pertinent information that other people don't know because they're not allowed to sit in on the deliberations of the Federal Reserve. Those are done in private, in secret. So there's no question what's going on here. These people were trading, and unless you would like to believe that they never made use of that part of their brain that had noticed where things were going in the monetary world when they made their trades, a presumption that would, you know, question your sanity, then these fellows who just resigned committed a crime 
for which they simply resigned. How nice, how very, very nice not to confront these people with the legal ramifications of what they did. And believe me, if you're the head of a regional Federal Reserve Bank, you know all about insider trading, you know all about what the law is, because it's been governing you for your entire adult life. So to read this article saying, gee, uh, oh, really, it makes one lose respect for the Financial Times. And that's as far as I'll go, because I'll stop being polite if I go further. Having said that, let me assure you that people all over the place in Wall Street and in banks are privy to insider information. Some of them then trade on it, which is illegal. Some of them tell their cousin Harry, and he trades on it, which is also illegal. Rooting that out is virtually impossible. And so, in fact, the authorities have looked the other way most of the time, and this one is no exception. You're not supposed to get caught at it. You're supposed to do it with discretion, or maybe even not do it when you're the governor of the Federal Reserve. It's bad enough you do it when you were coming up the hierarchy and you got into the higher reaches, but to do it when you're a sitting member of the board means a level of disrespect for the law and a desire to make cash gains off of your official position is so built into this system that any set of rules such as those announced in the wake of this scandal will do no more in the future than previous rules, including the law on insider trading, obviously were able to do up to this moment. So this is a scandal, but it is part of the daily corruption that this system exhibits the minute you lift up the lid and see what's just below the surface. Now to turn to the Federal Reserve. Let me explain very simply because it isn't all that complicated. This is the central bank of the United States, like other countries have central banks. What does that mean? It means that this is an agency of the government whose job it is to control and manipulate the currency. Very important that folks understand. Capitalist countries have tried over and over again to have the monetary system be private. In other words, to let private banks issue pieces of paper that function as money. That would be the privatization of currency. Wherever that has happened, the scandals and the corruption that have resulted, the manipulation by the banks that has resulted, has led to an outcry saying, oh my gosh, you can't leave this in private hands. It produces corruption, greed, inefficiency, we used to call them in the 19th century panics because suddenly your bank would be without any money and you couldn't get the money you put in there out. And so you panicked. And that's when you would see long lines in front of a bank as everybody tried to get their money out before there was no more money left. And so the government was called in to provide some safety, some security, because the private capitalist sector was how shall I put this? 
absurd as a way to control your money. But of course, to give it to the government raises new problems because the government can misuse the power of the currency too. If you go back hundreds of years, it was famous for the kings and queens in Europe, for example, to issue, take England as an example, a one pound coin that was ostensibly one pound worth of gold and to in fact put in other metals that you couldn't see that were covered over with a veneer of gold. In other words, to put out funny money or phony money in order to allow the king to do things he didn't have the money to pay for unless he fiddled with the money, which they did. So the compromise, since you couldn't leave money in the hands of private capitalists and you couldn't trust the government, was to create something like the Federal Reserve, which is, and I'm going to use the technical term, a quasi-independent agency. That is, it's not directly under the control of the president. It's not directly under the control of the Congress. It has an independent status in which the president names the head of it, but the banks in the country have a, a say in who gets to be on the board. So it's supposed to have a kind of independence of the government and yet not be a private enterprise in the hopes that what it does to the money system will be less damaging than what the kings and the presidents, if they had the power, could do or what the private sector repeatedly messed up. So that's why we have it. And here's its job. And this sometimes frightens Americans when they learn this. The Federal Reserve decides how much money will be in circulation. That's very important that people understand that. It's not the only creator of money, but it's the major one. Banks have a capacity to do pretty much the same thing as private enterprises, but they have to use the official money of the Federal Reserve when they do their creation of money. But the big shaper of the quantity of money in circulation is the Federal Reserve. There was a time when they were limited, for example, by the amount of gold that the United States as a nation had locked away in Fort Knox. But President Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971, and so now there is no limit. The Federal Reserve can create or destroy currency and money in circulation, whether it's physical money and coins and paper, or it's electronic money with a stroke of a computer key, you create an account somewhere. Those are the ways money is created these days. The Federal Reserve is supposed to do that, and here we go now, in the interests of a well-running economy. And what that means is there should be enough money circulating to do all the things we want without inflation, without letting prices rise in a way that would be socially disruptive or if you want to be complete without letting prices fall. So that's its mandate. Control the quantity of money and control, let's call it the terms on which money is available, the interest rates you have to pay to borrow. 
These are the things we call the monetary system. The amount of money in circulation, the rise and fall in that quantity, and the terms upon which money is made available from one person to another, and we call that the interest rate. These are very important things, even if you didn't believe in the old story that money makes the world go round, you kind of know it does. And so here's a statement for those of you that think that capitalism can do without a government and would be, oh, so much better if only the government got out, that our capitalist system in America has, for most of its history and certainly for the last century, been completely shaped by a government agency which controls that minor reality, the money supply, the interest rate, and you couldn't find two more crucial elements of modern capitalism than those two upon which the government exercises an enormous authority. Last point. One of the things the Federal Reserve is supposed to do is to use its control of the money system to offset and hopefully to prevent the extreme instability that the capitalist system exhibits. Every four to seven years, there's a crash. Sometimes they're short and shallow. Sometimes they're long and deep. Whenever they threaten, and as I say, we have them every four to seven years on average, one of the first things done, usually the first, is for the Federal Reserve to step in. If, for example, the economy is going into the toilet, like it did early in the year 2000, the dot-com crash, or as it did again in the last third of 2008, the so-called subprime mortgage crisis, or as it did last year in the month of March when the pandemic hit, its job is to go in there and offset the downturn, prevent it if possible, and lessen it if you can't stop it. The Federal Reserve has not stopped anything in the way of our instability. Every four to seven years has been the average. We've had three in the first 21 years of this century. That's about seven years per, which is just on schedule. So the ability of the Federal Reserve to manipulate the money system to avoid crashes, they get an F for that. They've never been able to do that. They're not able to do it now but they can moderate it. So here's what they did after each of the three crises I just mentioned, and they did it before that too, but just to use the current story. They pumped the money into the economy. They made money available like it's going out of style, flooding the economy with money in the hopes that by giving more and more of the people who deal with the Federal Reserve more and more money to use, they could get goods to be purchased, and that would mean jobs to be created producing those goods, and they lowered the interest rates. So bad has been the performance of American capitalism in the first 20 years of this century that we have interest rates at record lows. The Federal Reserve wants to flood the economy with money, so it says here, I'm the Federal Reserve, I print this stuff, I'll lend it to you for half a percent a year or 1% a year. Interest rates that were thought unthinkable before the troubled American capitalism hit the 21st century. So they brought interest rates down to nothing. You will notice that if you have a savings account anywhere, you're getting nothing for it. That's the Federal Reserve. 
And boy, have the banks, who are the usual partners of the Federal Reserve, they've been able to borrow money like there's going out of style because they don't have to pay any interest for it. Paying 1% or half a percent, which is the norm, it allows every company that wants to, that's big enough, or any bank, to get all the money it wants from the Federal Reserve because that's what the Federal Reserve wants, is to flood the economy with money. So every American corporation big enough to know how to do this has been borrowing money, which is why American corporations are deeper in debt than at any time in American history. That's why the government is borrowing as much as it is, because the interest charge is so low. So one branch of the government, Congress, the president, is able to borrow at very low interest rates and therefore is borrowing to beat the band because another part of the same government is bringing the interest rates down to zero. If this sounds to you like a kind of flim-flam operation, good. Then I've been effective as a teacher. This is a scandal. It always is a scandal because so many ways of abusing and manipulating can happen. And to end this, I don't want to take too much of your time. To end this, let me tell you where all the extra money has gone for most of the last 20 years. It hasn't gone to the companies that we hoped it might go to, to produce more goods and services and thereby to produce jobs making those goods and services. It didn't do that anywhere near the extent we had hoped. You know where that money went, most of it? Right into the stock market. The people who borrowed it realized there's no point in investing in companies that produce goods because the American working class can't afford to buy them. Their real wages haven't gone up, and they're in debt more and more with each passing year. They can't afford to borrow any more, and that means since their wages haven't gone up and they can't borrow any more, we're not producing more goods and services with all this cheap money we can get from the Federal Reserve. Instead, we're going to buy shares, hold them for a few months, sell them to another entity, likewise borrowing from the Fed, who will pay us more than we paid for those shares. That's called a capital gain. And the next one who does it is just like the first one who did it, borrows the money, buys the shares, sells them off to the next one. And as long as the Federal Reserve keeps pumping the money in, which it has done without stop, there will be the rising stock market because of the failure of that money to do the job creation that was intended. The only thing worse than everything I've just told you is reading in the newspaper that the rising stock market is an index of the economy's health. It is exactly the opposite. To read it that way is to say with a person who has an obesity problem, Look how healthy they are. They're gaining weight. No, it's not that way at all. It's in fact the opposite. That's the truth of what the Federal Reserve is and how it functions. Richard, really appreciate you sort of introducing for all of us, for our audience, some of the basic functions in the history of the Federal Reserve. And there's so much to cover here. We may in fact extend this topic into a second or even possibly a third part. 
But in the last few minutes that we have remaining, I want to talk about another period in pretty recent modern history where the Federal Reserve did just the opposite of what you're talking about in 2000 and 2008 with the second crisis, the real estate crisis, and now COVID crisis where the economy tanked, the stock market crashed, the quantitative easing, the flooding of the economy with cheap money happened again, and the stock market recovered and took off and is breaking every day, almost breaking new records. This is a period of the most recent history, but it's an indicator of what happens and how, in fact, the Federal Reserve policy of quantitative easing or flooding an economy with cheap money actually fosters the growth of inequality because so few in the population actually own the wealth that's derived from the stock market. I believe you've talked over and over again with us that 10% of the population owns 80% of the stock. So that's where the wealth is accruing. But I want to go back to another period where the problem wasn't an economic contraction per se. It was the 1970s where the scourge of inflation seemed to be continuous, nonstop, certainly starting after Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, and which was August 15th, 1971. And then there was the shock of the oil boycott in 1973 and the beginning of a strengthening of OPEC as a force, at least temporarily. Anyway, the 1970s, there was a lot of inflation. Prices were going up all the time. Workers were striking because they knew that their current wages were going to be insufficient to keep up with the cost of things, the price of goods and services. So there was a lot of labor militancy. There was a lot of inflation. If you had a bank account then, if you had a certificate of deposit, your interest rate wasn't zero or 0.05 as it is today. It might have been 12% or 13%. And this was the dominant part of the capitalist economy was the raging inflation. And then in 1979, the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker did the opposite of what we're talking about in the recent crises, which was to take money out of the economy such that the economy crashed. And you know, one of the reasons I believe that Ronald Reagan, who was considered in the earlier parts of the 1970s to be such an extreme right winger that he could never possibly be president of the United States, one of the reasons, it wasn't the only reason, but one of the reasons he defeated Jimmy Carter in the 1980 election was that the economy was in crisis, but the crisis was caused by the policy decision-making of the Bankers Bank, the Federal Reserve, under the leadership of Paul Volcker. Let's just go through a little bit of that so people understand this other capability, sort of the other side of the coin in terms of Federal Reserve monetary policy. Okay, let me try to do that in the few minutes that we still have. The story of 1971 is really the story of the Vietnam War. The United States undertook to fight a war half a million U.S. soldiers sent there, and so on, a war that the United States lost. But during the pursuit of that war, the president at that time, Lyndon Johnson, had a problem. And the problem was how to pay for the war. Wars are expensive. And he had two options. One option was to tax the American people and the American business community to fight a very expensive war. 
He didn't do that, and he didn't do it for a very obvious reason. There was already opposition building, and if he had to tell the American people every family in this country is going to have to kick in a thousand, two thousand, who knows how much money to help fight this war, you would have seen support for that war disappear as fast as a water on a hot day in the desert. So there was no way to do that. So the way he did it was to avoid taxing people by borrowing the money. And here's how it worked. The government, the U.S. Treasury, issues an IOU. It's called a Treasury Security. And it goes to the banks and big corporations and rich people, the only ones who ever led into the government in a significant way. And it says to them, here, I'm going to ask you to lend me the money. I'm going to give you an IOU. And there's a nice little bonus commission in there for you. And don't worry about it because literally within minutes after I sell you this thing, you can turn around and resell it to the Federal Reserve, thereby replenishing the money that you lent to me with fresh new money just like it. And for going through this game, I will give you a nice little commission so you'll make a profit off doing it. The big banks love this, the big insurance companies, the big corporations, and rich people. So they did it. They lent the money to the government, got the IOU, sold it to the Federal Reserve, which gave them the money so that they had replenished their account. What did the Federal Reserve do this for? To enable the government to fight a war without taxing its own people. The Federal Reserve printed whatever money it needed to buy these pieces of paper. It was then the Federal Reserve that enabled Lyndon Johnson to fight the war. The problem was when you flood the economy with all of this new money to buy those securities that people had who had lent to the government, there's a risk, and that risk was realized in those years, that that money will begin to go out and look to buy goods and services. Since no increase in goods and services had been produced, the extra money looking for that bid up the prices of what were relatively scarce goods and services, at least relative to the flood of money being poured in by the Federal Reserve. And so prices went up and then people got angry, working class people, because their wages weren't going up, but the price of everything was. It's something people can understand because we're living through the exact same scenario right now, but it was much worse then. Prices were rising faster and further. And so what Mr. Volcker did as the head of the Federal Reserve was go pretty much, oh my goodness, things are not working out the way we hoped. And so he slammed on the brakes by suddenly jacking up interest rates to record highs so that nobody could borrow money anymore. And as the people who had borrowed in the past paid back the Federal Reserve for the money that they had borrowed from it, that money was destroyed, physically destroyed. The money supply contracted and nobody could do business because nobody could live or function at 10, 12, 15% interest per year, which is what we had in those days. And the economy tanked and we went from the inflation and the problems it provides to a recession and depression with the problems it provides. If you ever wanted an example of the instability of capitalism, and of the inability of the Federal Reserve to prevent it, that earlier period will demonstrate it as clearly as what you see today. 
Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolff's book, Understanding Marxism, that's just been released. It features a new lengthy introduction which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the rising tide of labor militancy inside South Korea. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Starting in November, video episodes of our Thursday show, The Real Story, will be available with our new partner, Breakthrough News, on youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. We're excited that this breakthrough partnership will expand the reach of the show. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.